Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you a story about one of the most forgotten Hall of Famers in NBA history. You all know that part of the reason we do this podcast is to keep these stories alive and to remember some of the great players from the past that people do not talk about anymore. That is my passion and part of the driving force behind this show. But our subject today is truly forgotten. It's not just that people do not talk about him anymore, although that is true, but I was going through a few lists of some of the all-time players in NBA history, and he's not on any one of these lists. That is literally being forgotten. Our subject today is a player by the name of Bob Davies. On his Hall of Fame plaque, it actually says, First Superstar of Modern Professional Basketball. So why am I so worked up this week? By the time I finish this story, hopefully you will feel the same way. If we go through the NBA and talk about the best dribblers from each era, we might start with Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving from today's game, and their ball control is at another level. But before that, there was Jamal Crawford or Allen Iverson. Before that, there was Tim Hardaway. And then going backwards, we have Isaiah Thomas and Pistol Pete Maravich. If we go all the way back to the 1950s, we have to talk about Bob Cousy. That is where most people stop when it comes to the best ball handlers in NBA history. But I want to take it back one more generation to the late 1940s, because that is where we find Bob Davies, whose nickname was the Harrisburg Houdini. He was the inventor of the behind-the-back dribble. Back in the day when many players were still taking two-handed set shots, to see a guy coming down the floor at full speed and pull a behind-the-back dribble on his way in for a layup was like seeing the future. It was almost like taking Jason White Chocolate Williams and dropping him into the 1940s. He once played before a packed crowd at Madison Square Garden back in 1941 and used his behind-the-back dribble to great effectiveness. It was all the people could talk about. The New York papers used a ton of ink talking about this player from Seton Hall University who actually dribbled behind his back. Fans were amazed. If they had video highlights of Davies back then, they would have gone viral. Many experts at the time said that he might be the best college player since Hank Lucetti who played at Stanford 10 years earlier. By the way, if you want to hear the Hank Lucetti story, go back to episode 6 where I share the story of how he single-handedly popularized the one-handed jump shot in a game that he played in Madison Square Garden in the 1930s. But, back to Bob Davies. Back in 1971, for the NBA's 25th anniversary, they named their Silver Anniversary Team. This was a list of the 10 best players in NBA history, excluding players that were still active at the time, which is why you don't see Will Chamberlain or Jerry West on the list. 
but here is the list of the 10 best players in NBA history as far as the NBA leadership was concerned back in 1971. The list is this, Bob Cousy, Bill Sharman, Sam Jones, Bill Russell, George Mikan, Bob Pettit, Dolph Shays, Paul Arizin, Joe Folks, and Bob Davies. So why is he not talked about more? My best guess is that there is virtually no footage on him playing anymore. He primarily played in the days before game footage was saved. He did play on TV quite a few times, but hardly any of those games were actually recorded. But I feel like I am getting ahead of myself here, so let me take you back to the beginning of his story. He was born on January 15, 1920 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He was the kind of all-American kid that was good at everything he tried. He was quite simply a good all-around athlete. Back in 1931, he took third place at the National Marbles Tournament. He was 11 years old at the time. Just three years later, he returned to the National Marbles Tournament and lost the semifinal match to future Baseball Hall of Famer Harold Pee Wee Reese. But not everything was roses for the Davies family. In 1932, right during the heart of the Great Depression, his father, Idris, lost his job and money became very tight for them. But they made it through and did everything they could to make every dollar stretch as far as possible. By the time he reached high school, it seemed that he played on every team the school had. He was the captain of the basketball team and the baseball team. He also played football and ran track. He was a four-sport letterman at his high school. He was popular and easy to get along with. He was just good at everything he did. But he wasn't very big, so just for comparison, Davies is about the same size as John Stockton, six foot one and 175 pounds. He beat players with his speed and skill. He graduated high school in 1937 and enrolled at Franklin and Marshall University and played one year on the basketball team, but he did not enjoy his time there. As luck would have it, the Boston Red Sox helped arrange for a baseball scholarship for him at Seton Hall University. There was no contract signed with the Red Sox, but the implied expectation was that he would develop his baseball skills at Seton Hall and then join the Red Sox a few years later. But the weird thing about his transfer to Seton Hall is that he was given four years of eligibility at Seton Hall even though he had already played one year at Franklin and Marshall. But a lot about the NCAA was more relaxed back then. So now he is at Seton Hall on a baseball scholarship but also wanted to play for the basketball team. Since the two seasons did not conflict or overlap, it would have been easy to do. Now, this is when he became obsessed with the behind-the-back dribble. He felt a deep need to perfect it. He would spend hours in the gym practicing the move at ever-increasing speed until he could pull it off at full speed. He decided to walk onto the basketball team and join the freshman team. With his leadership, they beat the varsity in a practice game. That is when Seton Hall knew that they had someone special. He also played well for the freshman baseball team, and they also knew that they had someone special. Heading into his sophomore year, he was able to join the varsity of both teams and really make an impact for the school. He was part of a group of five sophomores on the basketball team who were known as the Seton Hall Wonder Five. The group included Ken Pine, John Ruthenberg, Bob Fisher, Bob Holmes, and Bob Davies. Yes, Bob was a very popular name at the time. They started a 43-game winning streak that would extend into their junior year. He also hit 381 for the baseball team and then spent the summer playing semi-pro baseball for the Burlington Cardinals in order to stay in shape for the next school year. 
His popularity continued to grow as he was featured in a few newsreels that were played before movies at the movie theater. Remember, these were the days before TV as we know it today. Matt Holman, the Hall of Fame basketball coach, called Davies the best basketball player he had ever seen. After that sophomore year is when Davies decided to make basketball his primary sport. He still played on the baseball team, but they switched his scholarship over to the basketball team. Due to the success of the Wonder Five, Seton Hall was able to build a brand new gym nicknamed the House That Bob Built. I guess when you have three Bobs in your starting lineup, it could have been any one of them. But in this case, it really was about Bob Davies. The school paid $800,000 to build that gym. And that was back in 1940. Two years later, in 1942, he graduated from Seton Hall as an All-American basketball player and with a record of 55-5 while on the varsity. He actually graduated early and skipped his final baseball season in order to go into the military. Seton Hall, along with many other universities, created an accelerated program for their senior men so that they could get their degrees before joining the war effort. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor just a few months earlier, and America needed every man available to help win World War II. So, instead of going directly to the pro leagues like most college athletes of Davies' caliber, he joined the Navy, where he was stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Training Station in Chicago. That was actually a lucky break for him, because Davies had been invited to play in the annual College All-Star Game, which took place in Chicago every year. A team made up of college all-stars would be matched up against a professional team. In this case, it was the Oshkosh All-Stars from the National Basketball League. The NBA did not exist yet, so the NBL was the top professional league at the time. Also, on a side note, the Oshkosh All-Stars were not really an all-star team. They were a regular team from the NBL who just went by the name All-Stars. In any case, the college players beat the professionals by a score of 61-55, to and Davies won the Game MVP award. Davies would later say that this is the game when he knew he could make it as a professional basketball player. But before starting his professional basketball career, the United States needed to win World War II. While he went through his training for the Navy, he played on the base basketball team called the Blue Jackets. They would schedule games against other bases and even against college teams. His Blue Jackets team once beat the University of Kentucky 53-39, and Kentucky coach Adolph Rupp called the Blue Jackets the best team he had ever seen. Davies entered the Navy as a third-class petty officer, and when he left the Navy three years later, he was a lieutenant. But this is what he did while he was in the Navy. He was a submarine chaser. He commanded a ship that patrolled the Mediterranean Sea looking for German submarines and engaging them if necessary. Davies never shared much about his time in the Navy, so not much is known about the specifics of his service, but that is not uncommon. My wife's grandfather also served in World War II, and he never spoke of his time in the service. But we do know this, anytime he had shore leave, he would find a gym and he would play pickup basketball with anybody else who was willing to play with him. As always, he played pickup games like they were the championship game. But once the war was over, it was time for him to join the professional ranks of basketball. At the time he left the Navy, the NBA still did not exist yet. The premier basketball league at the time was still the NBL. The NBL did not have a draft the way we think of it today. When a player became available, every team had the opportunity to outbid each other for that player's services. In this case, it was the Rochester Royals that stepped up and offered him the best deal. 
It worked out in a lot of ways as the Royals were loaded with talent. And if the name Rochester Royals sound familiar, it's because they still live on today as the Sacramento Kings. And this is actually a good place to take a break. Davies has just completed his naval service and is about to become a professional basketball player. So we'll be right back with the rest of his story. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show, and we will continue with Bob Davies' professional career. As I mentioned, the Royals team was loaded with talent. The team already had Al Servi, another Hall of Famer, Red Holdsman, who would later become the Knicks head coach of both of their championships and is now in the Hall of Fame as a coach. The team also had Otto Graham, who was in the Football Hall of Fame after leading the Cleveland Browns to a number of championships in the All-American Football Conference as a quarterback. And future Hollywood superstar Chuck Connors from the TV show The Rifleman was also on this team. And I shared Chuck Connors' story way back in episode 38 if you want to go check that out. With Bob Davies on the team, they made the fast break their hallmark. Now, nobody was going to confuse them with the fast-paced basketball that we see in today's NBA. This is not the seven seconds or less offense of the Steve Nash-led Phoenix Suns. But for the 1940s, where stalling was still an often used tactic, the Royals played faster than anyone had ever seen in that day. They finished the regular season with a record of 24 wins and 10 losses, and that took them to second place in their division behind the defending champion, Fort Wayne Pistons. Yes, that is the same Pistons team that plays in Detroit today. They matched up in the first round of the playoffs, and the Royals beat the Pistons two games to one. In the NBL Finals, the Royals overwhelmed the Sheboygan Redskins with their speed, and they took three straight games and the crown in 1946. The following season, the Royals were looking to defend their title, but in a very unusual decision, Davies agreed to become the new head coach at Seton Hall University while still playing for the Royals. It was about a seven-hour drive back then between Rochester, New York, and South Orange, New Jersey, where the school is located. The Royals owner and coach, Les Harrison, agreed to fly Davies back and forth on his private plane in order to make sure that Davies played as many games as possible. In all, Davies missed only 13 Royals games that year due to scheduling conflicts with Seton Hall. Yes, Davies still won the NBL MVP that year. Can you imagine last year's MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo trying to lead the Bucks to a title while also head coaching Marquette University? And those two teams play in the same city. But that is the way professional basketball salaries were back then. And I know I've said this before, but more often than not, players took pay cuts to play professional basketball. Many could make much more money working in a corporate job. So the players played basketball because they loved the game, and they could always get that corporate job later. The window to play professional basketball was very small. And did I mention that Davies was also the head coach of the baseball team at Seton Hall? But luckily, the baseball season did not interfere with the Royals' schedule. Unfortunately, the Royals were not able to defend their title. They lost the NBA Finals to the Chicago American Gears and their new superstar rookie, George Mikan. Then, in 1948, the Royals were focused on regaining their crown as NBL champions, and the odds were in their favor since the Chicago American Gears had gone out of business despite winning the championship. However, a brand new team called the Minneapolis Lakers had acquired George Mikan, along with future Hall of Famer Jim Pollard, 
and the Lakers steamroll their way to the NBL championship. Now, while all this was going on, Davies had earned his master's degree in physical education by taking classes in the offseason. This guy kept a full schedule and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will see shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care, and see you soon. For the NBA, this was a big coup. Not only did they want these teams for financial stability, but what they really wanted was the superstars of Mikan and Davies, because those two players sold tickets, and that was good for everybody. The first year in the NBA, which was 1949, was a successful one for the league. At the end of the season, they named their All-NBA First Team and... Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.